All right, well, it's good to be with you all here this evening. I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. As Toby mentioned just a moment ago, we are beginning a new sermon series in this book of 1 Thessalonians. The Thessalonian letters, it's toward the end of the New Testament. But these two letters are some of the earliest, if not the earliest, that Paul ever wrote. And they wound up in our Bibles here so we can hear their message even today. So tonight what we're going to do is uh, the first half of this talk is going to be kind of the story of how this church got started. The second half of the talk, we're going to circle back around to chapter 1. And we're going to read the beginning of this letter written to a church that was brand new. And Paul wrote this letter for two reasons. The first was to say, thank you God that you guys are making it. Thank you God for their faithfulness. Because as we're going to see in this story, it was pretty touch and go from the very beginning if they were even going to survive. That's what we're going to spend the first half of our time doing. The second reason Paul wrote this letter is to remind them to stay faithful, right? So the first reason is, hey, thank God you made it. You're faithful. Awesome. And then the second reason he wrote it was, hey, keep on keeping on. And we see this in the first chapter of this letter. And what we're calling this series is basically stay. Just that same word, stay. Because what we're going to find each week when we're in this letter during the fall are these big overarching reminders. And because they were so struggling, facing so much difficulty, the first thing he's saying is stay strong, okay? Stay strong. And the problem is if you don't stay strong, you tend to kind of fall back into some old habits and patterns and ways of living. So he's going to remind them, no, 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 no. Stay holy. Stay set apart. That's what you're going to see later on in this letter. Then he's going to say, also stay awake, And what he means is not just don't fall asleep because it's August and it's hot and it's the evening. He's going to say, no, stay awake to the fact that Christ is coming back. And that what you have hoped for will come to pass. And that is when Jesus returns to rescue us, to restore the world. And the people who have made a hell on earth, they're going to be brought to nothing. So stay awake and keep looking to the day that Jesus comes. And then the fourth thing, this broad reminder to stay faithful. He says, stay together. And this is what Toby read just a moment ago. These reminders to follow Jesus together because it's really hard to stay faithful if you're on your own. So these are the reminders that we're going to be returning to each and every week this fall. And tonight we're going to hear how this church started and then we're going to look at the first chapter in this letter to a church in a thriving, huge hub of a city called Thessalonica. In fact, modern-day Thessalonica is the second-largest metro area in the country of Greece. So it was moving and grooving even back then. There was all different kinds of people, all different kinds of ideas, all different ways of living, and it sounds a lot like where we live. So I think that we'll have some reminders to encourage us to stay strong, stay holy, stay awake, stay together. And I'm excited because this letter covers a lot of stuff that we don't, talk about just a whole, whole lot in this church. And so I'm excited to kind of explore some of these things with you. So let's get going. Before I tell you the story of how the church started, 
Let's read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You can remain seated and just follow along silently. I'm reading from the New International Version. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, and we continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, that are loved by God, that He's chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we, he's talking about Paul, Silas, and Timothy, you know how we lived among you for your sake. And then you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. We'll pause there. Macedonia was the region in which Thessalonica was like the biggest city. And Achaia was the region just to the south. And that's where Corinth was. And Paul, after he left Thessalonica, he went south to Corinth. And he wrote this letter and he sent it back up to Thessalonica. So we'll pick back up in chapter 1. Uh, verse 7. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Well, several years ago, my parents, my brother and I, went to Colorado in the summertime. Now, the woods love to ski, and we love Colorado, but we are not outdoorsy, adventuring types. Does this surprise any of you? No. And I want to tell you, I am a little surprised at how quickly you were shaking your head no. But let's just pretend that it is true. I'm not really an adventuring outdoor type. But this particular trip, we decided it would be a great idea to go on a guided mountain biking tour. And so my dad, my brother, and I rented these bikes and we went out with a guide. And it was fantastic. We left early in the morning. We got off the beaten path and into some of the mountain biking trails, some only as wide as the handlebars. Man, and we were rocking and rolling. We were going over streams. We were hopping over little logs, and we felt like we were actually something. And so then the guide would peel us off, and we'd take pictures at this vista, and we were gone for like three or four hours. So finally, he winds us back around, and we come back to the shop where we started, and we're like amped up. We're like, man, this was incredible. This is beautiful. This is awesome. And so then we're having lunch, and my brother and I are kind of looking at each other. We're like, man, we don't really have anything going on the rest of this afternoon. 
So you know what? You thinking what I'm thinking? We're like, yes. So the two boys who grew up in Garland, Texas, riding their little BMX bikes on O'Banion Road, decided it's a good idea to go back to the shop. And we say, hey, you know what we, we were thinking? You know, we are going to take two more bikes out. Can we rent them for a couple hours? And we're going to go, and I think we got it. They say, okay. So they grab a map, and we say, where should we go? And they say, well, you can take this lift up to the top of the mountain, and it's a ski resort. So after all the snow melts, there's left these switchbacks that just go back and forth down these ski runs. So he says, so what you can do is you can hop on that lift, throw your bike in the back, and you can go up to the top of the mountain, then you can just ride down it, crisscrossing all the way down. We said, awesome. In two hours, about how long do you think it will take? And he goes, oh, man, if you guys are really rocking and rolling, you could do up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down four times. And we're like, awesome, we got this. We put this in the lift, and we go up, and let me tell you, we did not get this. It was like 20 yards down, I start to get shake arm, and I realize that on this map, this is a double black diamond when the snow's on it. And when there's no snow on it, it's probably like a quintuple black diamond for two Dallas boys that don't know what the heck they're doing. And so then we get down a third of the way of the mountain, and we're kind of half laughing and kind of looking at each other and we're not saying what we're thinking and that is oh yeah it's a lot harder without a guide and it's a lot harder when we really don't know the way in front of us and so we begin to get shake tire and we're falling and doing all this and what happens at that moment is I have this panic setting in and I'm just thinking to myself there is no way I'm going to make it. Should I call Amy, who we were just dating at the time, and send my love and my will of the $14 I had in my bank account when I was 18 years old, and, yo, man, we just can't make it. And the thing that you have to understand when we jump into this letter and why we have to understand how this church began was that Paul and Silas and Timothy were the guides that you wanted to blaze the new trail of life with a new king named Jesus. And so they come in to this city of Thessalonica. And it's interesting that if you look back in the book of Acts, Acts is the story, the history of what happens after Jesus is crucified and raised and he sends out his people to say, now go tell the world that I am the true and reigning king. And so eventually you get to Acts chapter 16. And Paul is just tearing through the known world and he's saying Jesus is king. They're throwing him in prison. They're beating him up and this dude won't quit. He's trying to go to one area, and he senses the Holy Spirit saying, no, 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 don't go there. So he beds down for the night, and while he's asleep, he has a dream. And he dreams of a Macedonian man calling out to him saying, come and help us. Now remember I said Macedonia was what? It's like that large region in which the main city was Thessalonica. In fact, if you followed the ancient highway, it would lead to Thessalonica, which then opened up to a port city, which you can see on this map, that kind of opened you up to the rest of the world. And so it was a really strategic and fascinating place, and probably Paul was amped to go, because this was a hustling, bustling city. 
So he sees it in this vision. They set off, and you can see that yellow line. They take a long journey down to Thessalonica. Then when they show up, Paul does what he usually did at this time, and he went to what's called the synagogue. Y'all have heard about this. Jesus taught in synagogues. I want you to imagine some of the big churches in Dallas. They got their main campus, and then they have their satellite campuses. Are you familiar with this? So the temple was the main campus where all the sacrifices and the holy festivals happened. But then you had these satellite campuses scattered everywhere that the Jewish people were scattered. And those were called the synagogues. And the synagogues, they'd meet on a Saturday, and somebody would talk about the Old Testament. They'd pray together, and they'd pray and wait for God's king to come. So then Paul, naturally, shows up to the synagogue. He was a Jewish boy after all. And he's going to stand up and he's going to talk about, hey, y'all are searching the scriptures. Y'all are praying for a new king. And he would say, guess what? The Messiah, which was the Jewish word for chosen king, had to suffer. Then God would raise him up. Matter of fact, a little while ago, there was a dude named Jesus of Nazareth that suffered. And God raised him up. He's the king. If you read in Acts chapter 17, he does this for three weeks. He's wrecking shop and talking about this king, Jesus. Then what you see is that after three weeks, maybe even longer, because it seems when you read the Thessalonian letters that Paul was like working in the middle of the week and he was kind of getting to know them more. But let's say it's at least three weeks and maybe a little bit more. After this period of time, some people start to believe what Paul's saying. Some of the Jewish people say, okay, I'll get on board with your king. But a lot of what's called God-fearing Greeks. That's what you see in Acts chapter 17. These are people who were curious about the Jewish God, who liked coming to synagogue, not unlike a lot of your friends and family that are curious about Jesus and sometimes like to come and hear some beautiful songs, to just chill, to listen to some new ideas. They're like a lot of people today that are kind of kicking the tires on this whole religious thing. But what's interesting is that Paul wasn't offering a religious thing. He was offering a new movement and a new way of life with a king that looked like any other king. And so these God-fearing Greeks had had enough of the pantheon of the classic gods you read about in eighth grade. And they said, I think I want to get on board with this Jesus. They weren't fully converted Jews, but they became fully converted Christians. And then in Acts 17, Luke, who wrote it, said there was also a bunch of prominent women, which is a fascinating note. Because imagine if you're like the first lady or the wife of a CEO of a major Thessalonian corporation, you got to really believe and really make a change to sever your ties from the culturally acceptable gods and way of living. So when he says prominent women, it is a major coup. It is a major statement for women who boldly stepped out of what the prominent society would say is okay behavior. And they say, no, 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 I'm going to get on board with Jesus. Okay? So imagine, remember, we're talking about a month maybe, three weeks maybe. Verse 5 of Acts chapter 17 
But other Jews were jealous. I love this. This is the Disney villain song where they get over in the corner and they're looking at this and they're seeing all these prominent people, all these non-Jewish converts shipping over to the Jesus movement. Then, here's what they do. And I love this. I love this because this is like a legit translation. (laughs) It says, so they round it up. Y'all see that? Some bad characters from the marketplace. I can just imagine them rolling up to the Thessalonian marketplace going, hey, dude, you a bad character. And it's the guy with like the toothpick in his mouth and he's got the mom tattoo and he's like doing this with the man tank like Brendan Vaughn would wear. And he's like just, yeah, I'm a bad character. What's up, dude? And so then they formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. This is incredible. So now you've got this picture here of these bad characters. And they roll up to Jason's house looking for Paul and Silas in order they could bring them up and shake them down. So you got these bad characters that are ready to square off and throw down. Okay? This is bad, (laughs) bad news. They don't find Paul They don't find Silas. So what do they do? They go to the man's Airbnb. And they find this guy named Jason. And they gather up the rest of the believers that were in that house. Understand this. These people had not been beaten and jailed for the many months that Paul and his homeboys have been preaching the name of Jesus. These are people who are weeks old in the faith. They have just recently said, yes, Jesus, who suffered, and now they are suffering. So what happens next is after they drag them out and some of the other believers are there, now they don't just have the bad characters. They've got the city officials. The thing about Thessalonica is that it was a free city. That's a special city in the Roman Empire, okay? Macedonia used to be an empire in its own right. It was conquered by Rome like everybody else. And so they were still okay and with it enough where Rome said, okay, you can still keep some of your customs, your gods, your ways of organizing and governing yourself. So what they had was like four or five mayors that kind of formed a council to kind of lead and guide and keep the peace all under the umbrella of who? Rome. So, these guys join the bad characters and all of a sudden, those jealous Jews and the other people lobbying these attacks said this. These people are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now I hope you've been around this church long enough to understand that the good news of Jesus ain't just a fluffy, duffy, go to heaven when you die type of announcement. This is a political announcement that says you are not king, and I'm talking about us, the proverbial you. You are not really in charge of your life. Well, you are, but if you stay that way, there's going to be a bad end Because we're always going to steer the car back to destruction. So they're saying, get on board with another king. Well, if there's another king, that must mean that 
my allegiance is higher than my political and national king. When we pray, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth right here as it is in heaven, that means that we're asking that that be done even above America. And the Christians in Russia says, we think God's kingdom should come even above Russia. Wherever you are, when you pray this way that Jesus taught us to pray, you're saying yes to a better and different king, and you're praying for a better and different kingdom to come. So they weren't wrong during this little shakedown. They're saying there's another king, the one called Jesus. And that's why I love what they say first. Did y'all see that? They're the ones who've caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. They've been spreading this message that Jesus is the real king and now they've come here and they're saying Caesar ain't the son of God which was what was on every one of their coins. Jesus is the son of God. This is a crazy suffering situation. You gotta understand that Thessalonica had a good thing going with Rome. They were free to do and be their own people And you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you, right? Because Macedonia used to be an empire, and they don't want rumors coming back that these other people are whispering about another king. No, 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 Rome. No, we're good, we're good. So they're trying to squash this thing. Well, Paul, knowing that this may be the end of his rope, and God is calling him to go and make this kingdom announcement here, there, and everywhere else, Paul does the prudent and wise thing And he actually sneaks out of town. At the end of Acts chapter 17, right after this crazy riot, this crazy scene, they have to, under the cover of darkness, Jason and all these dudes, need to sneak him up out of town. And he goes down south to Berea. And then he goes down south to Corinth, which I mentioned earlier, where he writes down these letters and he says, Guys, I'm sorry I had to bail. And in a few weeks, we're going to see that his intro to his letter, which is actually really kind of one of those Adam intros that's like half of the whole message. And he's giving this whole long intro saying, dude, I felt like I was ripped apart and orphaned from you. And he says this, how are you doing? And he writes these letters. He sends them back up to Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica with Timothy, and he says, tell me, tell me, tell me, have they made it? Back to the bike story. There is this moment where there is a third of the way down, and I was behind my brother, and I had shake arm, and I had shake wheel because I was riding the brakes, and I was pointed, in my memory, completely vertically down. (laughs) And what happened next varies in my and my brother's imaginations because how it happened in my brother's mind is that he was going along in a very similar manner and he heard so he and he looks back and here's the trail and he doesn't see me And there's just this steep drop in this incline. So in my brother's mind, he's like, well, that was that. We had a good run. And he's running back, and he's hearing, ah! So he expects to peer over the ledge and see me rolling, ah! And what he sees, and this is not my proudest moment, what he sees 
is me not a hundred feet below, about a hundred inches laying on the ground going, ah! completely motionless. I'm not rolling down, but in my head, I could have sworn that the mouths of hell had opened and I was done. What actually happened is I upended I ripped my pants from the knee to the groin, and my sweater just kept going on up, and I kind of looked like a Hulk Hogan mountain biker from about yay to yay, just open, deep V, deep pants, and blood. And I was just laying in the ground going, ah! And as soon as I stopped screaming, we stood up, and we are dying laughing. Because finally, it felt like we had the moment right to say, this stinks. Are we really doing this right now? And we're looking at our watches and said, it's been an hour and a half. We've got to get these stupid bikes back. And we've not gone up and down four times. We've gone a fourth of the way down. And so at this moment, when we're looking ahead, we're like, we have to just go. We have to just keep going. And I felt like the worst has already happened. And here's the thing. As I'm going down with my shirt billowing out like a parachute and my pants open, I'm like, the worst has happened. I've got to keep going. And now I'm going to try to salvage this story and make a point about how the worst seemed to have happened in, Thessalonian, in the Thessalonian church. From the very get, they have their family rejecting them. They've turned their back on God their gods, to turn to God. And they're looking around and they're saying, are you serious? Is this worth it? And here's the thing that you've got to understand. And let me bring all of this back down to you today. Here's the problem. When difficulty comes, difficulty causes two things. It either causes doubt or it leads to hope. And sometimes it's both in that order. Sometimes it's both in the other order. Perhaps you're like me and you've had seasons in your life where the suffering, the struggle, the difficulty happens. You've fallen off your mountain bike. You're open and you're bleeding and you're sitting there going, ah! Here's what happens. You begin to say, surely this can't be the best way. Surely God is not there. Surely Jesus and his way of loving enemies and giving of myself and trying to pray and follow him and do this and do that and grow in my relationship with him, surely none of that is worth it. And you begin to doubt and you say, I can't even. There is no way I'm going to make it. What happens is difficulty sends you to two different corners. It sends you to one corner way down the road where you say, that's it. And doubt turns to despair and you're done. Or you have a moment where you pick yourself up off the mountain bike and you say, you know what? I'm pretty sure that Jesus struggled. You know what? I'm pretty sure that I'm still here. I'm breathing. I'm pretty sure that maybe my perspective is clouded. Maybe if I could get above the mess, I could see things from a different view. I can see that I am who I say he says I am. And maybe I can see that this is not the end. And so what happens when difficulty comes, you might enter into a point where you say, you know what? I'm going to choose to go to the other corner and say, you're all I've got. 
Maybe you get to a point where after a season of doubt, you have some moment of clarity that God gives you. And you see, oh wait, maybe I've let my circumstances dictate my reality when Jesus should be dictating my reality. And this is the choice of the Thessalonian church. This is the choice that you have to make. Sometimes you will hope and then you doubt. But let me tell you, it will not change the fact that Jesus believes in you. Whether or not you believe in Jesus, at some point in your life, really matters less than the fact that he believes in you. And this is what Paul says when he speaks back into the Thessalonian church. He says, I'm thanking God for you, and I'm continually praying for you. We remember God was at work in your life. And what he's doing is he's reminding them, you are still here. God has chosen you. Do you see that? He says, God has chosen you. And we know this to be true. This is the problem. His difficulty wants to cloud your vision. And Jesus wants to cut through the chaos and the noise and say, the worst has happened, but hold on and trust that your tomorrow with Jesus is better than today. And this is why in this Thessalonian letter, at the end of each one of our chapters, Paul didn't write in chapters. He wrote a letter like you write an email, right? And so what he did was at the end of the chapters in our English translation of the Bible is at the end of each one of those, he has this tag to remind them that Jesus is coming. And that's not a reason to be afraid. That's a reason to rejoice that this suffering has an expiration date. The worst has happened. Pick yourself up. Make it to the end in hope that he will not give up on you. And this is the message that we need for us. And why Paul wrote this as we begin to kind of turn toward the back half of this and look back at chapter 1. This is why Paul writes for two reasons. To thank God that they made it through such difficulty. And the second thing is to remind them who they are. Remind them who they are. So how do we stay the course? How do we stay strong? We need, what we need are prayers from others and reminders of who we are. That's what Paul is doing to this church that has fallen off the mountain bike. They're destabilized. They're looking around. He says, no, 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 you're not alone. We may not be with you presently, but we are with you in prayer. Verse 2, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now, Toby read verse 17 in chapter 5 earlier, and he says, pray continually. And some of you might think, whoa, dude, I'm barely praying like 10 minutes a day. Some of us might think that that means like we're just babbling continually. We can't go and tell the lady at Wendy's which combo we want because we're babbling and praying continually. What he means by this is that there is a consistent and intentional way in which he's praying for these people. Write down consistency and intentionality consistency and intentionality. Those of us who went to prayer school, we have this track that we've learned to pray, and he challenges us to pray this for 40 days. And what happens is, about midway through, right before we kind of sit and rest and be still, we have this moment for petition, that's asking prayer, and we have this moment for intercession, which is praying for others. Petition, praying and asking for yourself. Intercession, asking for others. So, petition is asking for yourself. Intercession is asking for others. Here's what I'm inviting you to do. 
to consistently and intentionally carry others with you in your heart to the presence of God. Can you all hear me okay? What it means is that we can, like Paul, while you are far, while you can't control a situation, while you can't change their heart, you bring them with you into the presence of God to the one who can do what you can't. What we say in this church is do what you can and let God do what you can't. You can't change them, heal them, transform them, but what you can do is bring them. So what we need to stay the course, to stay strong, is what Paul is saying. We need others praying. So, who is praying for you? Who are you praying for? Part of what it means to be the family of God is to carry one another in our faces, our hearts, our names, to speak and think and carry them to the presence of God. This is why we do church. This is why we do the local church. Because you need help. We must be praying continually for others. And what we also need is reminders of who we are. Because we're not immune to doubts. Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He's chosen you. Here's the problem. If you're not hearing that, you're hearing all the wrong voices in your head that creep up when you blow it. I've got tapes in my head that I'm ashamed to say still can blast when I'm having a moment. There are moments still to this day where I let my insecurities and my anxieties overwhelm me. When I've blown it, when I've made mistakes, what happened even recently in my head is thinking of how miserable and terrible I am. And I remember pacing around the house, hearing this tape on repeat, and then I have this voice coming from some deep part of me saying, that's not true. That's not who you are. And then the other anxiety and insecurity voice says, no, 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 that's what you tell other people. You're a phony. You're some pastor. That's the kind of crap that you preach. But in this deep part, it says, no, you're a son of God. No, no, no. And I'm, doing, I'm having this crazy dialogue as I'm like making laps around my house. Amy probably thought I was going insane. This is something that I'm not fully yet arrived at, but I feel like in Jesus you celebrate every step, and I feel like just the fact that that voice began to rise up and drown out some of the chaos is a step in the right direction. We need reminding that we are chosen and beloved because you know what? This church struggled, and you struggled. I think about a minister friend of mine who talks about how 40 some odd years ago, right at the beginning of his ministry, he met and confided with another person. He's like, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. And he was like leading hundreds of people to faith in Jesus. He was, had this crazy, thriving ministry. And he confided in his friends. He's like, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. And so what happened was, this pastor friend of his wisely said, well, do you love Jesus? And he said, yes. He says, do you want to follow him? He says, yes. He says, you're probably a Christian. But just in case, let's right now in this office of mine, we're going to drive a stake down deep through this purple carpet or whatever, because there's a Baptist church in East Texas. Y'all know what I'm talking about. He says, let's drive a stake right through this purple carpet. 
And I don't care if this building survives the next 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years. I want you to know that there is a place in your heart and your mind and in geography on earth that you can go back and say, this is where I settled it. And I think, friends, that you may not have had this gut punch moment where Jesus knocked you off your horse and you can always point back to that dramatic conversion. Some of you may have had a more gradual knowing and coming to see Jesus for who he is. But I want you to know, is there some encounter, is there baptism in which you publicly got up and said, I'm dead to my old life and I'm rising in new life. I'm setting my face and my feet in the direction of Jesus. And no matter where this baptistry goes, you can always come back in your heart to the stake in the ground or the anchor in the storm that says, one day I encountered Jesus, he changed my life, and even though my circumstances and my heart condemns me, God who's greater than my heart is restoring me, and he ain't done with me yet. And this is what the Thessalonians need to hear. And he says, not just the anchor, you also had an example Did you see that? He says, look, you know how we lived among you. In verse 6, you became imitators of us and the Lord. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you didn't just hear it and it excited you. It went down deep. And have you had a moment where you've said, yes, I get it. I'm on board with you. In our church, we don't talk about conversion enough. But what he's saying is, has there been a moment, like at a wedding, where you commit as much as you can, your whole heart for your whole life to Jesus? For richer or poorer, in suffering, in plenty, in want, in sickness, in health, all of these things. He's not asking for perfection. He's asking for your presence to show up because he will never leave you or forsake you. And so what happens in difficulty is you can go to the corner of despair or you can go to the corner of hope. But he's calling you to persist. He says, who are you imitating? You imitated us. You left the idols and you turned to God and you saw what it looked like in flesh and blood with us. Keep going. Keep going. And what I loved is when he said they turned to God and away from idols, is that they didn't just add Jesus to their life. They didn't just add him to the curio cabinet of gods that they had in their Greek pantheon. They said, I'm all in and I'm reorienting my life around Jesus. And they did so, so much so, that the whole region heard that even after the worst had happened, they persisted, they stayed strong because of their prayers from Paul and Silas and all the believers and because they were reminded that Jesus is who he says he is and they can stay strong in him. And you see in verse 3 as we draw down to a close, that sometimes you need others to remind you. Sometimes you need reminding. Like Paul says, we remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Because aren't we our own worst critics sometimes? Sometimes you feel ashamed that you bump into somebody you knew years ago when you're at a different stage of your life, and you wonder, man, what do they think if they saw the church stuff I'm posting on Facebook or Instagram? Would they think I'm a phony? And sometimes you 
have a hard time because you live with yourself and you live with your thoughts and no one else does and you live with yourself every day, day in, day out, moment by moment, that sometimes you let yourself become your own worst critic and sometimes you need the people around you to celebrate each step. Because sometimes if you're like me, you think about the 10 years more mature version of you and you begin to judge yourself against that person. What you need is people like Paul, people in this church, to say, no, 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 I've seen the work of God in you. Today, you might feel like you're out of step and out of character, but let me tell you, he who began the work that I've seen is going to carry it through to completion. And ultimately, that's how he ends that first chapter. He says, I've seen you guys, and everybody knows you've persevered through the mess, and you're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I'm going to leave it a little bit here because this is something we're going to be returning to time and again in Thessalonians. But one of the things that features prominently in these two early Christian letters are the fact that suffering stinks and the suffering is coming from people who are doing violence to me. And they have this righteous anger because they're like, Jesus told me to turn the other cheek, but like it hurts and they're killing us. They eventually will kill some of these Thessalonians. And so all they have to do, instead of go to despair, is to run toward hope and say, someday, Lord, we're going to trust that you're going to come and sort this thing out. Someday, you're going to hold all people to account, and you're going to say, what did you do? Did you believe that I'm the king that loves you, that has life? Or are you rejecting me, and you're showing that by making hell on this earth? And what happens at the end is he will give people what they want. And that is either life that doesn't miss a beat with Jesus. That even death won't separate us and we will continue in this life with Jesus forever. Or we don't want his life, we don't want his way, we want to make this place look anti-Christ. And what happens is he gives us what we want. And if the, author, the offer of Jesus is life, the alternative is death. And it's hidden there in places like John 3.16. The Son came so that anyone who believes in Him should not what? Perish. And so what happens is we get so messed up and we fear, we fear, we fear. You should be afraid if you're not choosing Jesus because what you're doing is choosing death. But if you've chosen Jesus and you can point to some anchor, some place, know that that will not make you miss out on the life that is in Him. We hope for a better tomorrow. And because I trust that Jesus holds a better tomorrow, I'll hold on today. But we've got to keep praying and keep reminding, even in the face of difficulty, to stay strong. I'll close with this story. There was a season in mine and Amy's life, and I think I've told this story before, but I felt like I needed to tell it again. There was a season in my life where we haven't experienced a lot of death in a long time. It was probably many years, and there was a particular death in Amy's family that was really, really difficult. She was in her 30s. She left behind three kids, and it was an ugly and brutal uh, battle with cancer. And I remember leaving this cemetery and we were driving away and we were just bitterly weeping. 
Because this whole season, I just really felt the sting and sadness and pain of death like all of us do. But in a way in which felt like so dark. And I was really driving my car toward the despair corner. I remember leaving that cemetery as we're just like bitterly weeping. That there is this song that we had had on. And I guess it got to this point where it had been playing for a while, but we only began to hear it after I began to say out loud, there's got to be something. There's got to be something more. This is terrible. And what we hear in those little 1998 Honda Civic speakers is this refrain, rescue is coming, rescue is coming, rescue is coming, rescue is coming, on this CD that we had left in the car some days before. And it was in that moment that I realized that Jesus has not promised us an absolution of suffering and pain, but he has promised us a resolution to it. And this is not the end. And this is what we need to remember, that the pain that you feel, the fear that you fear, has an expiration date. And one day we won't even need faith because we won't have to trust and hope. We'll see with our own eyes. And what we need to do now is stay strong and turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these letters that have survived the test of time. Thank you for the way they transcend time to remind us of how to be God's people together, to pray for one another, encourage one another, and remind each other of who we are and whose we are and the hope that we have in you. So Lord, we ask that you would comfort us with these words, that you would encourage us to keep going. In the name of Jesus, our King, who will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Go in peace.